Hey everyone, this is Arik. Uh, just wanted to give you two quick updates before we start this episode. The first one is that in the John Muir episode, Margaret and I were talking a lot about ground glass and how we didn't know what it was. Um, thanks to my dad, shouts out to you, Baba. We were able to figure it out. And a ground glass is essentially a sheet of um, ground glass and it was used in old time cameras to manually focus them um so you would insert the viewer into the back of the camera and you could move it to focus the image and the ground glass itself is glass whose surface has been ground to produce a flat kind of matte finish um so that's the first update and second update is in this episode we're talking about the Ebola virus and a book that talks about the discovery of the Ebola virus. So there are some pretty graphic descriptions of the medical impacts and the clinical signs of this virus, which is a little bloody and potentially a little graphic. So if you're sensitive to those sort of things, uh, you may want to skip this one. And with that, we'll get to the episode. I have a very important question to ask you. It's been on my mind lately. Have you ever thought about bleeding to death from your asshole? (laughs) (laughs) Well, I hadn't. (laughs) I hadn't really thought about that much, but I've been thinking about that a lot for the last week or so. Mm -hmm. Um, And the reason for that is because of the book that we're going to discuss today, which is called The Hot Zone by Richard Preston. Uh, it is a book on the terrifying true story of the origins of the Ebola virus. And then this book, um, he does have a second book, which looks at the second, or not second outbreak of the Ebola virus, but the outbreak of the Ebola virus that happened in like 2013. Mm-hmm. So this is focusing more on much earlier outbreaks of the Ebola virus in like the late 1900s, like 1980. Yep. about I think it starts in 1978 with Charles Monet um which is perhaps a pseudonym but this guy who's living near Mount Eldon in I believe Sudan um but yeah basically he talks about that and then a couple of other Ebola and filovirus outbreaks between you know, that like 1978 and um, the early 2000s. Mm-hmm. I think by the end of the book, Reston is 2003 or something, right? Or is it like 1990? Reston? Yeah. Um, I'll have to... I don't remember the, the rest... Um... Restin, 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 Restin. That's Restin, the whole Restin. thing with the with the monkey lab and all that. Anyway, we'll get. To no, that. I don't think that was in the two thousands. It was in the late nineties. Okay. Um, that was. Let me go into it. December seventh. I think it was um, like eighty seven, um, nineties. Nineteen eighty nine. So you were just on. You were totally correct. Um, and Mount Elgon is in Uganda. Um, it's on the border of Uganda and Kenya. Um, and then Mount Elgon feeds into, they have a map at the beginning of the book. Okay. Um, so Uganda is just south of Sudan. Okay. Um, 
Oh, interesting. I... Well, it's interesting looking at the map now because, you know, he talks about the geography quite a bit, but I was kind of picturing it differently than it actually is as I was reading the book. Mm-hmm. Should have referred back to the map. Okay, so that's actually a side question for you. A lot of books have maps, you know, in the beginning or in the middle. Like, my obviously, the example that comes to my mind is Lord of the Rings, mm-hmm. right? When you open yeah. the book, there's like these pages and pages of maps of Middle Earth. Do you find yourself referring back to them as you read books that have those maps in them? So actually, I find that it really depends on the book. And then it also, of course, depends on if I remember that there's a map at yeah. the beginning of the book. Um, so for me, honestly, um, in something like Lord of the Rings, like it gets so complicated that sometimes I just stop reading and just look at the map. um it's reasonable yeah and then kind of try to just i like to sometimes with the fictional lands especially like to kind of just familiarize myself with um the the layout you know sometimes and just kind of see the words so i'll kind of remember them but again it's if i remember to do that right um and then with a book like this i think i did come back and refer to this maybe just once or twice um but I do also remember, like, forgetting that there was a map in this, um, our copy of this book, um, yeah. and just looking it up on Google. Um, yeah. Do then you? I don't typically find myself referring back to the maps, but then when, because I forget that they're there, like you said. Like, when I find them and I remember them, it's super useful, but um, most of the time I'm just reading and I, like, forget that it's there you know? Yeah. Yeah. Well, beyond maps, I loved reading this book. It's like, um, I think a lot of people now, you know, know, have heard of Ebola before. Um, but this very much looks at like the discovery of Ebola. And I think Richard Preston in this does a really good job of capturing just the, incredible level of fear that everyone who witnessed this virus had in like seeing it and knowing they call it a um a biosafety level four contaminant um and yeah just the extreme fear that all of these people had and like seeing this virus act on patients and having no idea what it was but watching the patients die horrible horrible deaths yeah um yeah i think he did a really good job of capturing that yeah in this this whole book i really loved his writing style i i totally agree with that and i think like you know for the listener who's like potentially you know interested in um in this book what i will say is that like I'm not someone like you who, like, just loves medical nonfiction, right? Like, I don't just, like, read the driest medical nonfiction and love it and find it, like, super gripping, right? You read medical nonfiction the way I read business books, right? Yeah. um, But despite that, this is probably the most entertaining nonfiction book I've ever read. Um, It reads more like a paperback, like a Matthew Riley or something like that, that I used to read when I was a kid. Like, 
um, than it does like a medical nonfiction book. But it, what it really is is medical nonfiction, and it's super fascinating um, and also very entertaining. Like it's really a page turner. Mm-hmm. The way that he's gone and like reconstructed like the narratives around all of these people and what was going on. He's interviewed the doctors who were there and reconstructed the day of what what was Charles Monet, this potential first patient who ever first recorded human to ever get Ebola. Like, what was he doing? You know, what do we know about him? What do we not know about him? Yeah, what were the patient's lives like? Like, what was the... He kind of writes it in a way like a like a fiction novel and that he builds the character um he does the character building he doesn't kind of just list like george's name and like george has this title and was from this place and then continues kind of talking about the role that george may have had in the story that he's writing but he kind of he builds he builds a character he talks about again um with charles monet he talks about who was Monet? Where did he come from? What was his everyday life like? What was he, what did he do for fun? You know, like who did he spend his time with? Um, and he ties it in also very well with um, the medical case study of the thing. Um, I, yeah, Langaric said, I, I read a lot of, um, I like to read medical nonfiction. So there can definitely be case studies that are done very, very dry. <laughs> it's kind of like hard to read. Um, you know, like I can find it interesting because I have had somewhat of a medical background of sorts, but um, I would never suggest it. I would suggest this book to almost anybody. Yeah. Yeah. Totally. And I think the, uh, you know, one nice tie in with this is it kind of goes back to the same tradition, sort of, that. Oliver Sacks was talking about so at the in the introduction of the man who mistook his wife for a hat he mm-hmm. talks about this great tradition of like clinical case studies that actually look at the patient as an individual and like what they were doing and he traced it back to Hippocrates and then he this explosion of you know really personal case studies in the 1800s and then dropped off and his book was like trying to bring that back in a way mm-hmm. um i think this is in that same tradition of like really like personal and narrative driven um clinical case studies which is interesting yeah but i think even with that as you can tell that oliver Sacks, who was the author we looked at last week um he really you know his writing is still much drier than Richard Preston is. Richard Preston is obviously writing for the general public and not for someone who really has any, might not have any interest in yeah. medicine. Um, I think Oliver Sacks is definitely still biased in um, in that, that he's writing less so for the general public. Um, or just kind of, I think even what he's doing is taking, Oliver Sacks is taking like kind of case studies that he's published in journals, you know, and making them slightly more readable and publishing it, yeah. which, you know, I think can still be very interesting, but is not necessarily as gripping. No, um, totally not. I think it's, yeah, I think it's like a similar idea that both of them are coming from, but I think the difference is like Richard Preston is an author first and foremost. Like you can tell he's a journalist, he's an author when you read it. He's very... um effective at creating compelling texts 
Whereas Oliver Sacks is a psychiatrist first and foremost. And you could tell that from his writing, you know, like to your point, it is much drier and more clinical than this. Um, and in this book, he does a really good job of like, again, building this exciting narrative around the case studies and tying them together um, and and stuff like that. Um, okay, so I'm going to kind of get jump into this story um, and read this um, section here that um, it kind of puts you in um, where Charles Monet, who is this first suspected like um, case of of Ebola, the first case where they kind of have information, basically. Um, so, Monet came into the country, the country being Kenya, in the summer of 1979, around the time that the human immunodeficiency virus, or HIV, which causes AIDS, made a final breakout from the rainforests of Central Africa and began its long burn through the human race. AIDS had already fallen like a shadow over the population, although no one yet knew it existed. It had been spreading quietly along the Kinshasa Highway, a transcontinental road that wanders across Africa from east to west and passes along the shores of Lake Victoria within sight of Mount Elgon. HIV is a highly lethal, lethal but not very infective biosafety level 2 agent. It does not travel easily from person to person, and it does not travel through the air. You don't need to wear a biohazard spacesuit while handling blood infected with HIV. He then goes on to say that um, Monet, he worked in the in a sugar factory um, where he lived. He spent his weekend, weekends going out and visiting forested areas around where he lived. Um, he would watch birds. He would... Um, play with monkeys <laughs> um, in this area. Um, he mostly kept to himself. Um, he had a few female friends that he would see. Um, he kind of, I think what is really interesting about how he, about how Richard Preston describes this man and how I read it is he kind of starts, he goes over his life and he lists Monet's life and he talks about all of the people he had contact with, all of the animals, you know, that he kind of regularly saw what his house was like. And to me, it's kind of like, okay, which one of these interactions gave him Ebola? Right. <laughs> like I'm reading it and it's like, okay, like he had a housekeeper. Did he, you know, give Ebola to his housekeeper? I think again, that's kind of like right off the bat, um, good writing on Richard Preston's part. Totally. Um, so then it kind of continues on. He and a um, friend of his went and spent the weekend um, camping in Mount Elgon, which in Mount Elgon, there is um, something, a place called Kitum Cave. Yep. Um, and, you know, it kind of talks about he visits this cave with this person he's with. Nobody really knows, like, what did he touch there? What did he do there? Um, it's kind of, you know, it's, an, it's a cave. There are lots of bats. It's really dark. It's kind of like um, there's lots of, you know, there's dried feces all around. Um, 
It's actually Ketum Cave was historically where elephants would go to um, collect salt deposits. Um, so then that means that there's like in this place, there's a lot of um, elephant carcasses um, and, you know, elephant dung, things like that. Yep. And there's water in the cave as well. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of bugs in the cave. There's a lot of bats in the cave. Various animals and feces, like you said, elephants, leopards. Um, what are those little guys called? Um, the little rodent things that we looked up when, when you saw them? I don't remember. I can't remember. Okay. Uh, yeah, there's lots of little little rodent guys. Yeah. <laughs> um, Oh, hyraxes. 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 Hyraxes that live um, in the Mount Algon area. Um, so then it kind of, you know, goes over his um, his vacation that he had. Nothing really to think about. He goes back to his life. His lady friend goes back to wherever she goes. What's interesting there is then he mentions that the lady friend is, she's gone from the world no one can find her she doesn't get in contact like no one contacts her again for like like decades and then it's just like a random researcher in a bar in the middle of africa like overhears her yeah um, no I, I think she overhears him so the researcher okay, is yeah. in a bar like 20 years later 30 years later whatever it is and he's telling someone like about what he's researching and he's like oh yeah i'm researching charles monet and then she like kind of like whips around and goes like Charles Monet. Yeah, I know him. I was with him when we went to Kitum Cave, um, and that's the only way that she was found is just by random chance. Yeah, which is crazy. Yeah, it's so crazy. Insane. Um, so he goes on his vacation. Um, Charles Monet wakes up one day with a headache. Um, seven days supposedly after his supposed exposure to this agent. It was um, January 8th, 1980. He wakes up with a headache. He has like a throbbing pain behind his eyeballs, which later um, is, you know, that becomes one of the first signs um, that it said that these people looked for in Ebola cases is a throbbing pain behind your eyeballs. Um, so he wakes up, he has this terrible headache. He's kind of starting to get like, weak um you know droopy um kind of starting to his face starts to kind of turn like this yellowish pale color um and then he starts to get really confused doesn't show up for work um people start looking for him you know like his job basically is like what where, where'd you go man um <laughs> <laughs> um one of his co-workers then kind of goes to his house um, and is like, you know, sees that Charles Monet is very unwell, um, tries to take him to a hospital, a private hospital in the city of Kisumu, um, which is on the shore of Lake Victoria. The doctors there are like, literally not a clue what's wrong with this man. Um, they give him some antibiotics and then they're like, yeah, you should probably go to... Um, Nairobi hospital which um and then so then they have to try to coordinate how to get this man to Nairobi which means that he needs to take he needs to fly there basically mm -hmm. um and so he boards the plane 
um, with Ebola, <laughs> which is, you know, I think especially in these like COVID times now, I think it obviously kind of people are a little more aware of how viruses spread, right. I think. So I think to read this now and like this man boarded a plane <laughs> in the middle of, you know, the middle of Kenya to go to Nairobi. Um, no, nobody knows what he's sick, sick with, but he's just, you know, he's going to be on this plane. He flies there um, with this virus replicating inside of him. Um, he goes, I'm trying to kind of follow this along, see if there's a good quote to um, here. The commuter flights that drone across Africa are often jammed with people, and this flight was probably full. Um, the land, it kind of describes then the plane crossing the um, different places of Africa. Um, they saw specks of huts um, clustered around circles of um, thornbush, cattle trails. Um, the seats are narrow and jammed together on these commuter airplanes. And you notice everything that is happening inside the cabin. The cabin is tightly closed and the air recirculates. If there were any smells in the air, you perceive them. You would not have been able to ignore the man who was getting sick. He hunches over in his seat. There is something wrong with him, but you can't tell exactly what it is. Um, this man, it kind of continues to describe this man. Um, he's throwing up in this bag, the, the like air sickness bag. The bag swells up. Perhaps he glances around. And then you see that his lips are smeared with something slippery and red mixed with black specks, as if he has been chewing coffee grounds. His eyes are the color of rubies, and his face is an expressionless mass of bruises. The red spots, which a few days before had started out as star-like speckles, have expanded and merged into huge, spontaneous purple shadows. His whole head is turning black and blue. The muscles of his face droop. <laughs> um... And then he kind of goes on to explain. I mean, I guess warning, a little late, some of this is pretty graphic. I'll probably go back and put in a warning at the beginning. So feel free to sh like quote anything from the book. Cool. Um, the connective tissues in his face are dissolving. And his face appears to hang from the underlying bone as if the face is detaching itself from the skull. Um, they give it a word eventually, like kind of the classic, like kind of black and blue um, look that the skin has because um, the third layer of skin is filling with blood yeah. is what's happening yep. at this point, at this stage in the virus. Um, yeah. Because <laughs> it's what... Um, anyway. Um, he opens his mouth and gasps into the bag and the vomiting goes on endlessly. It will not stop. He keeps bringing up liquid long after his stomach should have been empty. The air sickness... Air sickness bag fills up to the brim with the substance known as vomito negro or the black vomit it's not really black um it's speckled with liquids of two colors black and red um it is a hemorrhage and it smells like a slaughterhouse the black vomit is loaded with the virus it is highly infective lethally hot a liquid that would scare the daylights out of a military biohazard specialist um, the smell of the vomit fills the passenger cabin. Um, the bag is brimming with this black vomit. Um, he has to then, I think one, one part that really freaked me out is next in this. He 
has to hand off his like brimming fill to the brim black vomit bag <laughs> to the air attendant um who then has to you know take the bag away <laughs> yeah um which is yeah horrifying um feel free to jump in at any point yeah no for sure um so i actually real quick i'll i'll jump in there so imagine being on that plane while this guy like i've been on a plane while someone's like coughing you know and sneezing too much and i it like makes you uncomfortable and i'm talking about like a 747 like jumbo jet you know like Mm -hmm. three rows away the guy is like sneezing and coughing and i'm like yo why the hell did that guy get on this plane yeah right (laughs) again i can think again like especially in covid era it's kind of like terrifying to think obviously no one wears face masks no. On a plane in 1980. I mean, you smoked cigarettes on the plane in 1980. Oh, God. That makes me think the smell of the vomit is probably also mixed with, like, thick cigarette smoke on this plane. <laughs> Ew. It's <laughs> a horrible smell. <laughs> yeah, that's atrocious. Deadly and atrocious in many ways. Yeah. If the Ebola doesn't get you now, the, the fucking cancer will get you later. <laughs> Well, thankfully, Charles Monet doesn't live to see the cancer. Uh, I'll spoiler take cancer alert, over I guess. Ebola. Absolutely. 8,000 times out of 10. What this book told me for sure is that I will take literally anything over Ebola. Ebola sounds like the worst. Yeah. Uh, to continue with that, um, back to Charles Monet. The intestinal muscles are beginning to die and the intestines are t- starting to go slack. He doesn't seem to be fully aware of pain any longer because the blood clots lodged in his brain are cutting off blood flow. This is all still on the plane. He's still on the plane here. His personality is being wiped away by brain damage. This is called depersonalization, which is the liveliness and details of character seem to vanish. Tiny spots in his brain are liquefying. The higher functions of consciousness are winking out first, leaving the deeper parts of the brain stem. The primitive rat brain or the lizard brain still alive and functioning. Functioning. The vomiting attack appears to have broken some blood vessels in his nose. He gets a nosebleed. The blood blood comes from both um, nostrils, a shining clotless arterial liquid that drips over his teeth and chin. Um, the blood keeps running because the clotting factors have been used up. A flight attendant gives him some paper towels, which he uses to stop up his nose. Blood, blood still won't coagulate and the towels soak through. Um disgusting now this man who has just been puking blood into a bag next to you on this airline is now like bleeding everywhere out of his nose i would be terrified i'd be you know? so scared you'd think it was a like zombie apocalypse the way that these ebola cases are described i mean again yeah. this guy is this disease is so bad that it's dissolving the connective tissues in his face and his muscles are melting off of his bones yeah he's like entered like a place in his brain where his personality is no longer a functioning part of who he is as a person. Um, And meanwhile, there are people sitting next to him on the plane. Um, (laughs) um, Yeah, let's see. Um, This kind of, he just kind of continues like that on the plane. He is like almost comatose on this plane. Um, they land eventually, but now this man has to find a taxi, get into a taxi, um, 
<laughs> and then get to the hospital, which he does like barely. It's kind of then describes a scene of him like stumbling at the airport terminal, um, just kind of like saying, you know, thankfully it's a place where the taxi drivers come up to him and they're like, taxi, taxi, taxi. There's all these people offering to take this man who looks like he's about to die into their car. Um, <laughs> I can't imagine like the flight attendants or like the gate agent, like the other people on this flight just like leaving him to go do whatever. I mean, I'm sure flying on a commuter flight in 1980 in Kenya is very different than what I've ever experienced in my life of flying, you know? For sure. I mean, I think one thing that's important is like, first of all, we are both lucky enough to be highly educated people and we kind of understand the very basics of disease transference. Right. Um. So like, I am fully aware that if I sit next to a sick person um, on an airplane, that depending on the, I mean, I guess it also, you know, depending on the virus that they are carrying, I may inhale that virus and get sick. However, you know, it's like they mentioned um, in the AIDS bit that I read, you can't get um, HIV from aerosol. Yeah. You know? So for what it's worth, side note, HIV is only a biosafety level two agent. Mm-hmm. I was looking this up earlier for some examples. COVID, SARS-CoV-2 is a biosafety level three um, biosafety level four is literally like smallpox, Ebola, things like that. Like extremely hazardous and extremely fast transmission, extremely easy transmission. Yeah. Um, they go on later in this story, um, in this book to mention that the, the people who work with biosafety level four, um, diseases, viruses, they have to literally wear like spacesuits with like three to four layers of rubber gloves underneath um, to try to ensure that they don't get um, any particle of virus in them when they work with these Asians. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, it's yeah. really scary. I mean, we'll get we'll, we'll get into it later in this episode, but the. The whole thing about like the people who work with these viruses, the virologists and the biologists is mind boggling what they do. Mm-hmm. Um, so Monet, eventually he gets to Nairobi hospital. He um, goes and he then has to sit in the waiting room at the hospital, um, you know, and it's kind of like he's in the waiting room for a hospital in East Africa. That's one of the only like hospitals for many many miles um you know like this man did just have to take a like a flight to get to a real hospital that wasn't just like a small private hospital where they can't do much other than give you an antibiotic injection mm-hmm. um so he's sitting in the waiting room now of this jam-packed hospital um continuing to sit there breathe the air that they're all breathing um and he's not getting triage, right? Because at that moment, he's Mm-mm. not like throwing up blood and shit anymore, right? He's just kind of sitting there. So they're kind of ignoring him and dealing with the people who have more pressing issues um, initially. So he's like... I mean, it even actually then like one of the sentences, um, they call it the casualty, casualty department um, is, is what the waiting room is called. There is always someone in casualty who has a cut and is waiting for stitches. 
Um, people wait patiently, holding a washcloth against the scalp, holding a bandage pressed around a finger, and you may see a spot of blood on the cloth. Um, so, like, I mean, there are people bleeding, you know. Um, I mean, actually, I've thrown up blood, and I wasn't triaged in an emergency room before. Oh, shit. Yeah, so I think, like, generally, they they don't really care. Um, (laughs) (laughs) that's not really gonna necessarily get you in there. (laughs) Wild. Yeah. Um, I didn't have Ebola, by the way. I, uh, split my kidney. I was not vomiting blood because I had Ebola. Um. (laughs) (laughs) Good disclaimer. Yeah. Um, so kind of to wrap up, um, not to wrap up. Anyway, um, Charles Monet, he leans over, head on his knees, um, brings up an incredible quantity of blood from his stomach and spills it onto a floor in it with a gasping groan he loses consciousness and pitches forward on the floor um he continues to vomit blood and black matter well unconscious um then comes a sound like a bed sheet being torn in half which is the sound of his bowels opening and venting blood from the anus the blood is mi- mixed with intestinal lining he has slothed his gut Um, The linings of his intestines have come off and are being expelled along with huge amounts of blood. Monet has crashed and is bleeding out in the middle of the casualty department floor. Um, So crazy. Yeah. That's the world's first introduction to Ebola virus. Yes. Yeah. Only at this point is he then reached, like, rushed to a doctor um, in the ICU. Um, And then there's this doctor named... Dr. Musoki? Musoki? I'm probably butchering that. Yeah, I'd say Musoki. Musoki. You know, he's really, he's a well-known guy. He's great. He's going in and he's gonna, you know, he's gonna fight like hell to bring this patient to life right now. But he has no idea what's going on. You know, of course, he sits and he's like, he's not even thinking about um, what is going on with this man. He's trying to save his life, right? So he kind of tries to go... Um, one thing that's actually an interesting um, old technique for cardiac arrest is the doctors reach into the chest cavity and try to manually pump the heart. Crazy. So, uh, you know, he tries to do that. He thinks about doing that. Can't even feel a heartbeat from the outside. So he's trying to just open the airways with the um, laryngoscope. Um, so, but in trying to get the laryngoscope open um he blood spreaders everywhere um he goes goes everywhere in this room as they're trying to the laryngoscope is basically like the scope that goes down your throat right um (laughs) and so basically he sticks it in the guy's throat and then blood just sprays out everywhere right all over the room all over the doctor's face and mouth and eyes yeah his the doctor's hands become greasy with black crud. <laughs> um, yeah, it kind of goes on. He, um, I think one part that, then Monet vomits. And I think the one part that kind of is like, <gasps> is the black vomit sprays out of his mouth into Dr. Muskogee's eyes. Um, yeah. Yikes. Um, it's a yikes for me, dog. You know, it kind of continues to be this, like, massive, massive blood loss in this room. And um, Monet, Charles Monet doesn't make it. Um, But um, 
they try, you know, they try sticking like needles in him to give him a blood transfusion and he ends up just like continuing to like bleed out from these needle pokes. They can't find a vein, but he just bleeds out from these needle pokes. So he's just bleeding from everywhere, you know, um, literally anywhere that he possibly can, um, he's bleeding out. Um, nobody knows what killed him. They have, um, one of a quote is a nurse brought a bag of whole blood, which I guess is actually that's where she's trying to mm-hmm. give him a blood transfusion. Um, <laughs> yeah, they they have nothing, they have no idea what caused what causes this. Um, nine days after uh, Doctor Muskogee um, gets sick, you know, he then wakes up and he has a throbbing headache. Um, he gets, you know, red eyes. Um, but, um, he, of course, he doesn't think about this patient that he just saw. He doesn't think about Charles Monet. Cause he sees hundreds of patients a day. Right? He sees hundreds of patients and, you know, they have no idea that it's like a freak thing. Um, he... Um, eventually has to go into surgery, um, which really, um, not an awesome thing for a person with Ebola. Um, they, he just kind of doesn't stop bleeding from where the incisions are cut and like they're, they have a quote where like the surgeons are up to their elbows in blood trying to do exploratory surgery on this doctor who treated Monet. Um. They have no idea what's going on, you know, but they take a sample. They take a liver sample. They do a liver biopsy and that gets sent to the CDC in Atlanta. Um, I'll hand it over to you so I don't just like read the whole book right now. (laughs) So basically we then, luckily, like you said, this guy takes um, some blood serum and the liver biopsy and he sends some serum to um, the National Institute of Virology in uh, Sandringham, South Africa and the CDC in Atlanta, Georgia. Um, And then they introduce uh, David Silverstein, who is a... He was Muskogee's surgeon. He was? Oh, yeah. You're totally right. Um, yes, he was a surgeon over there. He lives in Nairobi. Um, it just I, I saw the line where it says he owns a house near Washington, D.C., and I got the characters confused. Yeah, so anyway, so Silverstein is this expert um, doctor, really high up physician. Um, and he gets the call from... Um, the CDC, um, and, or actually this is from the South Africans and they found Marburg virus is what Charles Monet had. Um, so then they go on to explain what Marburg is, um, because they knew almost nothing about Marburg at this time. Um, and basically, um, Marburg Viruses are named for the place where they're first discovered. Um, Marburg is an African organism, but it has a German name because it was, it it erupted in Marburg, Germany in 1967. 
um, in a factory called the Bering Works, which produced vaccines using kidney cells from African monkeys. So basically, the virus came to Germany somewhere in a series of air shipments of monkeys, um, totaling five or 600 total monkeys, and as few as two or three of the animals were incubating the virus. And it basically ran through this town of Germany, of Marburg in Germany. Um, so the first guy broke with it on August 8th, uh, 1967. And then um, people just kept dying. Um, 31 people caught the virus, seven died in pools of blood. And the kill rate of Marburg turned out to be about one in four, which makes it an extremely lethal agent. Um, even in the best modern hospitals, when the patients are on life support machines, Marburg kills about a qu quarter of the people who are infected with it. So just to contextualize these kill rates, um, yellow fever, which is considered highly lethal, kills about one in 20 patients once they reach a hospital. And I'm actually curious what the rate would be for COVID, but I would imagine it's way, way lower than either of those. Um yeah, so while you look it up, he basically goes into then explaining um, what Marburg is from a genetic perspective. They're basically phyloviruses, which are um, which is a Latin word that means thread virus. And all of the phyloviruses look very similar, and they don't resemble any other viruses on Earth. Um, and they're basically like weird strands of like rope or worms or strakes snakes they look very str distinctive and um unique and marburg is a ring-shaped virus it's the only ring-shaped virus known um but anyway not long after charles monet died from marburg it was established that the family of phyloviruses comprised marburg along with two types of a virus called ebola and we have Ebola Zaire and Ebola Sudan. Um, so again, yellow fever is considered highly lethal and it kills about one in 20 people once they reach in a hospital. Ebola Zaire kills nine out of 10 people once they reach a modern hospital. A 90% kill rate with modern like facilities versus a 5% for a virus that's considered lethal, highly lethal. So this thing is like, this is like the nuclear bomb of viruses. Like, oh yeah, it is crazy. There is nothing like it. Um, yeah, that nine out of ten. Every time I say it or read it, I get like a like a chill at the nape of my neck. A <laughs> nine little out bit. of ten for a virus is horrifying. It's a horrifying thing to think about, honestly, because it's something that. Um, you know, like it's a particle that you cannot see with the human eye and it takes a single, a single particle to infect your bloodstream. And then now you are infected with something that at the time this book was written has a nine out of 10 kill rate. Yeah. Um, yeah. So then, um, I think we can probably skip forward a little bit. Oh, yeah. He talks a lot about the history or, or the details of the virus and then one thing that I thought was interesting, um, I was looking this up afterwards because I was curious. So like we said with the last book, I guess this is another disclaimer we should have had at the beginning. This book was originally written in 95 or something like, no. 95? Yeah. Okay. 95, something like that. 95, 97. 
Um, so some of the information is a little bit outdated. Um, and, and he does have um, another, like, his follow-up um, Ebola book, um, which did come out in 2019. Um, but, you know, we can, you know, leave that as a little, like, a end hook. We'll tell you about how Ebola goes if you don't know. Um, you just gotta <laughs> hang tight. Hang tight till the end. But here's a really interesting thing about this. When we're, he's talking about filoviruses in 1995, which is roughly 35, 36 years ago, um, he talks about how there's Marburg, Ebola Zaire, and Ebola Sudan. So now if you look at the uh, filoviridae, which is a family of viruses, um, there are six genuses, six genera of them. Um, Ebola virus and Marburg virus are only two of those six. And then within Marburg, there's now two uh, viruses in Marburg virus, Marburg virus and Raven virus. And there are now actually um, six kinds of Ebola that we found. So in this book, we learn about um, Sudan Ebola virus, Zaire Ebola virus, and towards the end, Reston Ebola virus. Now we also have Bombali Ebola virus, uh, Bundibugyo Ebola virus, and Thai forest Ebola virus. Mm-hmm. Which is pretty crazy. Again, just going back to like the advances in medicine are pretty amazing. Well, I think that that also really speaks on advances in the virus itself. Um, right? Is I mean, even with the Reston um, strain of the virus happened like within the timeline of this book. That's true. But I guess the question is, is it a new virus that has evolved or is it just the first time that we've seen it as humans and cataloged it and... Um, you know, it's broken in the human race because I think he says somewhere like these viruses are like some believed to be some of the more ancient organisms on the planet, um, because they're so simple and so vicious and so effective. Um, yeah, I mean, I honestly, I don't know if they have a way to truly date viruses, you know, like, because they're so, they're so small, there's so little, to go off of in a virus. Right. Um, it's just what, like seven proteins. Right. And so I think like, I honestly, and of course I could be very wrong. I don't know if there's a way to distinguish those two things of like when we discovered, when humans discovered this virus versus when it appeared. Um, so a lot of the newer strains of Ebola virus that we have now, those, um, I would assume some of those come from the West African outbreak of Ebola that came in 2013. But, and so then it kind of goes back um, to a lot of what this book ends up looking at is where did this virus come from and how did it, how did it get into the human race? Um, Later in this book, they kind of look at, they do several more missions back to Katoom cave um, with two different teams, I think, um, one is more of like a individual guy and he goes and he looks and then one is a whole like military operation going to Katoom Cave to yep. look for where did this virus come from, which horrifying is they never find out. So that's what's that one really stunned me. So this guy, Gene Johnson, he's a scientist for um, USAMRID, U-S-A-M-R-I-D, which is the USA military research institute for infectious diseases 
I believe. I'm going to look it up it was, and see if I got that right. Off it was the well, well done, honestly. United States Army Medical Research Institute of Infection. That was pretty close. That was pretty close. I'll give that one to myself. But anyway, he's a senior scientist there, and um, they're prompted to go like look for um, Ebola because they're terrified of it breaking out, and they're like, the only way we can stop this is if we understand where it comes from. So they make this like major operation to Africa. They've got all these scientists. They've got spacesuits. They've got all the bleach, the the disinfecting equipment, um, everything you could think of. Millions of dollars, like no expense spared. Um, and they go in the cave. They have sentinel animals. So they've got like um, healthy monkeys and rodents and other things that they place throughout the cave, hoping that one of them will break with the virus so that they can track it down. And they've also got, um, they're going in and they're taking samples of animals. They're sacrificing things. They're taking water samples, like every scientific procedure you could think of. And they come back empty handed. There's nothing no sign of Ebola at all or Marburg. They haven't found anything and it was just a wash. But one very important outcome of that was that this guy, Gene Johnson, was basically able to take a bunch of this leftover equipment for setting up a hot zone uh, or a biosafety level four lab in the field. Mm-hmm. And he just like stows it away in like various places at, at the research institute because he's like, Someday I'm going to need this stuff. And when that day comes, I'm not going to have much time. So he just like holds on to it, kind of like hides it away, which that was one of my favorite parts of the book, actually. It's just like this little like researcher, like, you know, going against like the bureaucracy and just like stashing a bunch of like. Yeah. It's like expensive. you already gave me this equipment. What are you going to do? Take it away? It's already in the budget. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But I think that that. Yeah, to kind of go back to your, like, how do we know how long this virus has been in the environment versus, you know, how long it's just been in the human population? And I think one thing I is honestly that is a, to go back to Charles Monet, right? If his lady friend that he had brought with him to Katoon Cave had died of Ebola, nobody would have known. Yeah. Right. Until they found her alive. For all anybody knew, she had died right. of Ebola um, or a Marburg virus. So I think that, you know, it is very, very possible that Ebola had been in the po- human population before it was recorded. You know, For sure. Yeah. But who knows? I don't think that I think that there's a lot of things is no way to know um, right. how long it's been there, how much time it's had to mutate and become a bit better bigger stronger virus right um which i think is always true with a virus especially they can replicate very quickly um you know they use your own cells or the host's cells to become a bigger better stronger virus where does he go next after charles monet um and where then dr musoki go next this one actually goes um back in time Mm -hmm. Uh, four years this is um 1976 um and this looks at a place that is 500 miles northwest of mount algon in southern sudan so this looks at ebola sudan 
Um, this is I'm why I was assuming. confused initially and said that Charles Monet was Ebola Sudan when actually he was Marburg. Just For sure. Side note. Um, um, that's definitely the only reason why you got confused. And it's not because you have tip top. Um, you know, you definitely have tip top African geography knowledge. I won the geography B in middle school. Hey, so. I did too. I did too. Here we are. <laughs> Two geography B champs. <laughs> Um, Maybe that needs to be an episode. Is a geography be rematch between you and me? No, because the thing is, is you won the geo. You, I won the geography be in quaint Minnesota. You don't. You didn't live only in Minnesota. I was in Buffalo, New York, which is more quaint. Okay, than yeah, but you came from Singapore and literally told people that you'd had your first pair of shoes. So, like, <laughs> you know, what does that tell you about <laughs> the geography education here? <laughs> um, <laughs> anyway, um, <laughs> so this talks about this. Um, this Sudan outbreak talks about this man named, um, who was known as Mr. U-G, um, spelled Y-U-G. Um, he was a storekeeper, um, at a town called Nazara, again, in Sudan. Um, they, you know, he, I think, where does it, I think they think that it's possible his first interaction with Ebola was from bats who lived in the factory that he worked in. Um, what was really interesting, I thought about this, was that one of the things was, uh, one of the quotes was that there is no photographs ever taken of Mr. UG during his lifetime. No one seems to remember what he looks like. Um, yeah. Yeah. It kind of goes at what you were talking about before with like the like how many people, how many anonymous people in human history have bled to death because of these viruses and no one knows who they are? Yeah, No absolutely. one has even heard their story, you know? Yeah, yeah. Um, so this man, Mr. UG, um, he, he died in a cot um, at his family compound, didn't have a hospital to go to. Um you know, kind of mysterious. There's not much to go off of. It just says he died in a cot. Um, but soon other people who worked near him, um, begin to fall ill. Um, they break with the same bleeding, um, going into shock and dying of massive hemorrhages. Um, it's assumed that, that Mr. UG also died of, um, you know, and it kind of spreads through this area. Um, destroy here. Sorry. Um, again, the Ebola Sudan virus um, destroyed a few hundred people in Central Africa. In Central Africa, the way a fire consumes a pile of straw. Um, so. It's, you know, it's spreading through this small town in Sudan. Um, it's killing a lot of its hosts. Um, I think this is really where, like, one of the things that horrified me. So it talks of this hospital that is set up by... Um, Some nuns, right? The nuns, yeah. It's like a very small hospital. Um, it hit the hospital like a bomb. It savaged patients and snaked like chain 
lightning out of the hospital through patients' families. Apparently, the medical staff had been giving patients injections with dirty needles. <laughs> um, you know, the virus quickly jumped through the medical staff um, through needles or through the hospital via the needles. Um, Imagine that in 1976, they're giving injections with dirty needles. Yeah. That sounds which, to me like something that would happen in like 1876, you know, not 1976. Which I think is honestly something that really made me think like, and I think that I might have talked to you about when we were reading this, that I think it really shows that how much of a place of privilege we get to come through, come from yeah honestly is we couldn't imagine a place where they're using all of these dirty needles i mean i remember what you told me is like you wouldn't even use the same needle in a wildlife hospital to draw up the medicine and to inject it into the patient yeah i mean absolutely you know and like a small wildly underfunded nonprofit, like you're changing your needle with every poke of something yeah. um you're never using the same needle between two patients um Ever, you know, and so then it actually goes in and later at um, a different hospital run um, by nuns. This is two months after the start of the Sudan emergence. Um, the time is now early September 1976, and even more lethal filovirus emerged 500 miles to the west in a district of northern Zaire. Um, so then this talks about the... Um, the strain of Ebola Sayer again goes to a hospital run by nuns in a small, small town. Um, Yambuku is the name of the, the village. Um, so at the beginning of each day, the nuns at Yambuku Hospital would lay out five hypodermic syringes on a table and they would use them to give shots to patients all day long. They were using five needles a day to give injections to hundreds of people in hospitals, outpatient, and maternity clinics. Oh, my gosh. Which is horrifying, but they probably don't have a choice. Yeah. You know, like, if you have only five needles a day is what your allotted is, and you're giving, you're giving injections to hundreds of patients... You know, they probably, the supply chain isn't there. The money isn't there. Um, what are, what are you going to do? Yeah. I you mean, know? it's either you take your ch chances with the dirty needle or you, uh, you can't get the vaccinations or you can't get fluids or whatever else it is. Yeah. You know, and they kind of go on, the, the staff and nuns occasionally rinse the needles in a pan of warm water after an injection um, to get the blood off of the needle. Um, but often they proceeded from shot to shot without rinsing. However, you know, like very few people probably, you know, in the long term, this affected very few people negatively and many more people were able to get antibiotics or, um, malaria drugs in a place where they would otherwise have died. Yeah. You know? Yeah. But I it's definitely I have no anger towards like the nuns or anything like that. It's no, absolutely not. Stunning that that's the conditions under which one, this hospital is operating and two, these people are having to live, you know? Uh, yeah. Yeah. I think that that's really what for sure hits me. It's like that is the reality. 
just a, you know, I am grateful to live in a place where that's a horrifying reality. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, for sure. Um, but anyway, eventually this school teacher breaks with Ebola Zaire. He's the first known case of Ebola Zaire, but he may well have contracted the virus from a dirty needle during his injection at the hospital, which means that someone else might have previously visited the hospital while sick with Ebola early in the day and received an injection from the same needle. That unknown person probably stood in line for an injection just ahead of the school teacher. That person might have started the Ebola outbreak in, in Zaire. Um... As in Sudan, the emergence of a life form that could, in theory, have gone around the earth began with one infected person, um, which is crazy. Yep. So back to Ebola Zaire, the virus erupted simultaneously in 55 villages surrounding the hospital. First, it killed people who had received injections, and then it moved through families, um, killing family members, particularly women who, in Africa, prepare the dead for burial. Um it swept through the Ambuku hospital, um, killing most of the nurses, and then it hit the nuns. Um, the first nun to break with Ebola was a midwife who had um, delivered a stillborn child. Um, the mother was dying of Ebola and had given the virus to her unborn baby. Um, so then this, yeah, this nun um, gets Ebola um, she is now today known as Sister M.E. She became gravely ill. Um, this nun who got sick from delivering the stillborn baby um, gets taken to um, the capital of Zaire, which is Kinshasa, um, to try to get to a hospital for better medical treatment. Um, you know, they <laughs> do the same thing that Charles Monet does, and they... They get on a plane, <laughs> um, you know, and fly her to the the nearest major hospital. major hospital. Um, but at least this time, she has like a one of them came with her and like brought her to the oh, hospital. Oh yeah, at least she has someone with her. Yeah, <laughs> she's not on her own. <laughs> um, so yeah. She she gets sick. He kind of then goes on to talk about um, what Ebola does to the connective tissues, which is, as we said, it 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 liquefies it. It completely liquefies it, um, takes what holds your organs together, and it breaks it apart um, and tries its best to flush it out of your body so that it can infect more people, you know? Yeah. I think um, the stunning thing about Ebola is, like, it, it goes through this amplification, which basically means the virus uses it gets into a cell and then it uses the machinery of the cell to replicate itself right using like the rna um its rna with the cells um organelles um but the crazy thing about it is like it's so effective at doing that that like you said it literally liquefies almost your whole body like that's its mechanism of action that's why it's a hemorrhagic fever is like your brain turns to sludge, your connective tissues turn to sludge, your gut turns to sludge, your skin turns to sludge, your eyes turn to sludge. Like, you literally just turn into a human bag of, like, bloody liquid goop. Yeah, with, like, dying infected clots. 
Yeah. Yeah. One thing that you read like multiple times in this is like doctors or vets who have like done necropsies on people or on animals after they've been died from Ebola are always stunned because it seems like the animal has been dead for like three days from the state of the body, but it's been dead for like an hour. Yeah. So actually on that right here is the quote. After death, the cadaver suddenly deteriorates. The internal organs, having been dead or partially dead for days, have already begun to dissolve, and a sort of shock-related meltdown occurs. The corpse's connective tissue, skin, and organs, already peppered with dead spots, heated by fever and damaged by shock, begin to liquefy, and the fluids that leak from the cadaver are saturated with Ebola virus particles. Um, there's, yeah, yeah. This is where Nurse Mayinga comes into play, right? It is. So it's the um, the nun who had delivered the stillborn baby. Mm-hmm. She goes to the hospital. She dies in the hospital. They mention um, when it was all over, the floor, chair, and walls in um, this nun's hospital room were stained with blood. Um, nobody goes in to clean this room. Everyone is afraid to touch anything. Um But then the other nun who accompanied the first nun, um, she falls sick. And then is um, this nurse at this larger hospital um, called Mainga. Mm -hmm. Um, She cares for both of them. Um, uh, Nurse Mainga had been caring for the nun, the first nun, when she died. Um, She may have been splattered with the nun's blood or with black vomit. Um, at any rate, Nurse Mayanga first develops a headache and fatigue. Um, she knew she was becoming sick, didn't want to admit it. Um, you know, she is actually, what's really interesting about then Nurse Mayanga is she is, comes from a poor family, but has just gotten this opportunity to go and study, um, in... Uh in europe so then she being you know she's scared for her life that she's gonna be too sick to get on a plane so she then goes (laughs) to the city center and she goes and sits in the um zaire foreign ministry office to try and get her paperwork sorted so she can board a plane to europe as fast as possible yep um so but you know, this is like a three-day process of her going into the city center, trying to sit sit in the ministry office and get her paperwork. Right, the she's bus just around. Getting, yeah, just getting more and more and more ill, which again, horrifying to think about. <laughs> yeah, I mean, she's literally riding around Kinshasa, which is a major bustling metropolitan me- mm-hmm. metropolis. Um going around in buses, embassies, hospitals, and she's got Ebola Zaire. Yeah, yeah. It goes on. um, News of the virus and what it did to people had been trickling out of the forest. And now a rumor that a sick nurse had wandered around Kinshasa for two days, having face-to-face contact with many people in crowded rooms and public places, caused a panic in the city. Um... She, as soon as she gets back from her um, trying to sit in the ministry's office, get the the paperwork started, um, she checks herself into the hospital that she had previously worked at. Um, You know, people people at um, the World Health Organization had um, 
been alerted. And so they were starting to freak out that this, like, you know, this lady who had been around is about to start like a worldwide plague. Um, You know, like European governments are like thinking, like, do we block all flights coming out of Kinshasa? Um, Like, what do we do? Um, The president of Zaire um, sends his army into action. Um, He, they go um, and are stationed at the hospital where this lady is now a patient. This nurse is now a patient. So they basically lock down the hospital, right? They say no one's getting in or out. Mm-hmm. Everyone's quarantining in here. So um, for for all of you who are mad about the stay-at-home orders and stuff, at least you didn't have to be locked in a hospital by the army while everyone liquefied around you. Yeah, You just had to sure. stay home and use Instacart. Yeah, man. You know, got to watch a lot of Netflix, drink a lot of wine. Um. <laughs> if you're ever feeling down about COVID, which is easy to feel because it sucks, um, just think about that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, you know, they kind of like everyone is the army is starting to quarantine these places. They're saying like no one like blockade like roads coming out of the forest. No one comes out of there. They lose radio contact with um villages in the what was called the bomba zone um side note one thing i thought was really fascinating i think we did talk about this as well when we were reading earlier is that the um one thing that they believe really helped prevent this thing from spreading like crazy is these ancient techniques in these villages and tribes where basically due to smallpox they had developed techniques to deal with these things so one thing was, like the army was blockading the hospital, they blockaded their own villages. They said no one gets in or out. Nothing is going through here because of the risk of spreading these diseases. And then the other thing they would do is essentially create these dying huts. So anyone who gets sick goes fucking over there and they're staying away. And it sounds brutal, but if you think about it, it's actually a great technique. And I think like these ancient elders who had seen smallpox and other things come through um, their actions saved like tons of lives in that area. Thousands, thousands of people. That's actually um, later in this book, it does talk about um, one of the medical professionals who eventually worked on um, part of the Ebola outbreak that happened later in this book um, talks about his work and he went around um, during this Ebola outbreak um, in Africa. And that was a big, you know, like you drive. There's not, there's very few roads. There's probably one road to get into a village and, you know, he's blockaded at all the roads. They have, they've made it so they fill the road with trees and brush and they have men stationed, like guarding, not allowing people to come in to the village. Um, And only once they realize that, like, you know, they have a doctor with them that they're allowed in. Um, But that... And that's what they do. They don't let anyone out. And, you know, you go you go into the dying hut if you start to become ill. And the only person who was allowed in and out of the dying hut was the doctor. Um, but it contains it. It contains it completely. And I think he even mentions then, like, it's saved countless people for them to figure those techniques out and implement them. Um, which is, honestly, I think, like, incredible. It is, it's an incredible, I think, um, feat of what humans can do. Um, so go, to go back to Nurse Mayinga, mm-hmm. she's dying in this hospital. 
that is now um, blockaded. You know, everyone is quarantined. As she's dying, they take a liver biopsy from her and they send it to the CDC. They get the serum again, the blood serum. So it's actually, they do a liver biopsy. um, As the terminal shock and convulsions came over her, they inserted a needle into her upper, upper abdomen and sucked out a quantity of liver. Her liver had begun to liquefy and the needle was large. A fair amount of the nun's liver traveled up the needle and filled a biopsy syringe. <laughs> That's insane. Yeah. Um, yeah. So they also take then blood from her arms. Um, you know, like, basically it's these people now, they know that it's some unknown virus that is wreaking havoc mm-hmm. in their, Country. where they live. Yeah. yeah. Um, but this, her biopsy gets sent to the CDC and it is there, um, in 1976 where they get this first shepherd, the first picture of an Ebola virus particle. Um, it has a pronounced shepherd's crook is what they call it, um, that the virus has. It's kind of how they know it. Um. And they don't really classify it, I think, until years later. They kind of just have it and they're confused, you know. But it's from Nurse Mayinga that they get this picture, finally, yeah. of the Ebola virus particle. Um, if I remember when I post this podcast, I'll I'll see if I can find a link to a publicly accessible version of that image. Because it's, it's pretty amazing to look at that little strand of... of um, genetic material essentially that has the potential to just like destroy our world (laughs) yeah for sure yeah um yeah and then that kind of from there um those are the strands of Ebola virus that they find um that he touches in this book yep so that's marburg and then ebola sudan was the first outbreak you talked about with the non-hospital and then the second non-hospital is ebola zaire where we got the um first picture of ebola virus from nurse Mayinga. yep yep and just to be clear that's a picture like under an electron microscope of oh yeah the virus particle for sure um, um yeah yeah and it talks about um whoa. yeah Wow, we talked about this for a long time. <laughs> it's been an hour 15. So I, mean, I guess we could, we, we could definitely keep going. We should probably but, um, wrap pretty soon. Um, so let's not go into nope, we, uh, we're going to. the U.S. stuff that's going on. Well, I was going to start talking about Nancy Jackson stuff, but I'm going to not do that this episode. Yeah, we'll talk about Nancy next episode. Yeah. Um, we'll have to have a follow-up. Um, yeah, it's incredible i think it is obviously you know horrifying i think what i mean again the um the what did they call it do 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 i had it marked in here somewhere like the backwards quarantining reverse quarantine that the african people did um where they you know drive people out of their village mm-hmm. or don't let people in, saved countless people. Um, you think it's incredible, um, honestly, you know, yeah. is, and horrific, you know, all at once is, you know, I'm sure like it must have been incredibly difficult like to send 
like your brother into the dying hut to know that that is a better option, you know, and that's the best thing to do rather than leaving to find help. Right. Um, yeah, I think that it's, I can't think of the word, uh, you know, but like human tenacity. I've been trying to use the word tenacity a lot in this day, but I don't really think that that's the word I'm looking for. I mean, I think it takes tenacity to, to, as a leader there to say, no, like we are blockading, no one's getting in or out and that's what we have to do. Yeah. yeah. Um, for sure. I think it's just like, I mean, it's really just the strength of the human will, right? I mean, Mm -hmm. it's a sign of like what humans are capable of doing how we can band together and do these like incredibly difficult things under the most horrifying circumstances that you could imagine. Actually, it's not the most horrifying circumstances I could imagine. It's far worse (laughs) than the most horrifying circumstances I could imagine. I mean, the descriptions, if you think what we read to you was graphic, like read this book, there are many more descriptions that are just as bad or way worse of what this virus does to people and to monkeys and to apes. This thing is crazy. Yeah. Ebola is uh, no joke. No joke. Um, It's, yeah, I think, yeah. Imagine living in a village with no, like, real, you know, education likely beyond maybe an eighth grade level if you're lucky. If you're lucky. Because, again, we're talking about 1976, and people are just exploding into blood. Like, how can you... I mean, you... even if you were here, right, you have a college degree, and a, the person next to you on the plane is starting to bleed from every crevice. You don't... And you don't have the preconceived knowledge of Ebola. Yeah. You know? Um, I think the only like saving grace there is like, I feel confident in America that if I saw that I would be like noting down my flight number, noting down the person, <laughs> I would be calling the airline, I'd be calling the CDC and be like, right. Yo, yeah, like, you can call this the dude was freaking throwing up black bile and blood. Something was horribly wrong. You need to contact everyone that was on this flight. But at the same time, <laughs> right? Like the number of people that were on his flight so crazy it may have been a hundred people yeah maybe you know it's probably way smaller how many people are on a commercial flight in the u.s and how many different places do those people go as soon as they get off the plane yeah i think that's the scary thing about this uh zaire outbreak right is like very easily within days like if it had broken out fully in kinshasa then it gets to London and New York and DC in like two days. It could have been a, a global pandemic yeah. very quickly. Um, and a real, real, a very horrifying pandemic. one. A, clo- a global pandemic with the medical technology of over 40 years ago. And a virus that's like inconceivably worse than the pandemic we're in now that has shut down the world for two years. Yeah. Yeah. I can't imagine. It would what... be a zombie apocalypse situation. For yeah, sure. seriously. I don't know how like critical infrastructure wouldn't just collapse and like the world would shut down because of the transmission and the like f- severity of the symptoms and the kill right. rate. But at the same time, I think like who knows how many people it all depends on how it spreads. Right. Yeah. I believe at this time they don't believe that it's spreading through aerosols so that means that the 
number of people who are in danger of being infected are much, much lower, thankfully. Yeah. Um, otherwise, you're totally right. We probably would have a much different world now um, <laughs> if Ebola Zaire had left Kinshasa at that time um, in something other than a liver biopsy. Yeah. 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 But. So, yeah, next time you guys are going to have to t- tune in for an episode two on this because yeah. we have a lot left to cover. We have <laughs> Nancy Jacks. We have the. Um, whole Reston thing, which I don't want to tell you too much about, but it's monkeys. very exciting. Monkeys. We have to talk about monkeys. We have to talk about the ethics of medical research. And we have to talk about like the realities of biosafety level four scientific work and what that actually looks like. I mean, some of those passages where you're reading about like, you know, them scrubbing in and out and like them getting ready and the, you know, what if I cut my glove open? I mean, that's we touched intense. today we touched on the discovery of Ebola to parts of the world. Yeah. To parts of the world. Um it continues. There's so much more to talk about. Um thanks for listening in. Arag and I obviously had a lot of fun yep. reading this book. <laughs> we were really, really hyped to um talk about this. Um maybe someday. You'll get Ion back. Maybe not. Um, only time will tell. Only time will tell. If you really want to get in touch with Ion, um, hit him up. Contact at rdmr.io. Drop us a line. We'd love to hear from you. <laughs> <laughs> See you next time. <laughs>